0: Broken records, the albums you wouldn't shut up about. Broken records, the music our guests can't live without. Like Judy, Barbara, Liza, Bette, Betty, Audra, Bernadette.
1: Bernadette. We broadcast this podcast with hopes that someday we might get Welcome to Ben Rimmelauer's Broken Records on Broadway World, Broadway Podcast Network, and now, Broadway On Demand. I'm Ben Rimmelauer, and I'm here virtually uh, recording this episode with, as usual, the loveliest co-host on God's green earth, Daniel Nolan.
0: (gasps) Thank you. Hey, y'all. So happy to be here. We have a very, very, very special guest today.
1: Yes, we do. You all know him from his infamous, notorious Instagram account, Dublin underscore Zotrope, where he has made minced meat of Glenn Close. And um, (laughs) his name is Mark. And we think he is so brilliant. And we know you do too. And we are so happy to have him today to corn stream with us. Fuck Me, I Forgot the Name, the amazing HBO documentary oh. <laughs> about Debbie Reynolds and Carrie Fisher something, something, Bright Lights. Bright, it's just called Bright Lights. Bright Lights. Please say hello,
2: Mark. Well, thank you very much for having me on. Uh, your listeners don't know who I am at all. And- they are all I your fucking you. fan.
0: Are you crazy? I but guarantee that- you every one yeah. of our listeners knows uh, Dublin Zotrope.
2: Yes, you, you have way more followers than we do. I know, but they're not really real ones. I mean, they're mostly sort of, you know, teenage girls in the Midwest, I think. And they sort of...
1: (laughs) I don't know if that's the case. Oh, really? Um, Yeah, I feel like like your fans are our fans, and then you have other fans who don't like us.
2: Right, that's
0: very true.
1: Yeah. Well, I just, you
2: know, thank you for having me on, and I must excuse myself to your guests and say it was a lean week and you had nobody else to ask and
1: um no you are you are (laughs) choice I cannot even get into this humility from you I hope that it's I hope that it's false I hope that deep down inside you know you know how brilliant and fabulous you are oh thank you everybody that I
0: know adores you um and and I'm just so tickled I feel like we have like a real exclusive here because um I know you said something on Instagram about you know being open to doing interviews and podcasts but like Have you done any others? Like, are we the first one?
2: Well, more or less, because I did do a test one with these two fetal
1: gays in sort of (laughs) hashtag fetal gays spelled the British way, which is uh, it's what is it f o e -E. love.
2: Well, I did do a test one with them. And sort of uh, recorded. And they said my accent was too hard for their listeners to understand. What?
1: So, I don't think that's true. I, mean, I, think, maybe. I think they just didn't like you and they used the accent as the yeah. excuse. Because your accent is very easy to understand. Okay. And I have bad hearing. Well, yeah, I
0: was expecting it to be way more intense. But it's totally, just slight. Yeah, well, totally.
1: and more than that,
2: I mean, I didn't want to go on podcasts. If people thought I was some hick shouting into a tin can with string. And really, the (laughs) the sound quality is probably so poor. That's what what people think I am
1: doing. But, um, you know... You know, I think especially nowadays in COVID times, people are not so hung up on sound quality. I mean, we did our first few episodes, like, in a recording studio with an engineer. And then, you know, eventually we were just, like, going over to people's houses with, like, our $30 Amazon mics. and, And now, you know, we do it on a computer... Some of our guests don't have any kind of a microphone device attached and it's fine. It's all about the content, you know? I mean, it's not like an audiophiliac experience. I know.
2: I felt you're sort of drawing the ASMR crowd or something and I was going to let them all down. (laughs)
0: No, definitely not
2: our
1: crowd Oh my god, you're just so smart You know, your references are always Just so specific And so rich and so perfect And hilarious and witty And I mean, I'm just Honestly, I'm still shocked And now that I saw you in that little Insta video That you posted um, And now that I'm hearing your voice I understand that I think you told me you're 24 Is that right? Well, that's not correct, but I'll go with that or something crazy. in your 20s, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when, when I first started following you, I was convinced you were like me in my mid-60s, at least. <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, I, I think people sort of either think I'm some sort of, you know, 16-year-old um, tragic gay somewhere, or else I'm some elderly queen sort of whining about Glenn Close. But uh, no, I'm, I'm in my 20s, yes.
0: Yes. I assumed the latter. I mean, I really thought you were going to be like much older, but I mean, it just speaks to why you are so successful and why you're so brilliant and well-loved on Instagram is because you have the tech savvy and kind of the, um, you know, you have your finger on the pulse of what's trending and what's popular in like the zeitgeist as like a young person. But then you have this aesthetic and this deep, deep knowledge of, um, You know, pop culture. Much of it, which has to do with, you know, older older movies and films and Hollywood and. and But not so
1: old. I mean, you know, I I'm really turned off. I mean, just when we were waiting for you to join the call, Daniel and I were talking about how he loves "Gentlemen Prefer Blondes" and he just rewatched it. And I was saying that I love Marilyn, but I fucking hate those that movie and movies like that. Most old movies are such a turnoff to me. It's only like the very 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 you know cream of the crop, the sunset boulevards and the all about eves that I can really enjoy. And I, I always feel everything that you reference is like right in the sweet spot of everything I love.
0: But you, but yet you do talk about like old, like uh, Hollywood actresses and stuff like that. So I guess my point is you are such a great blend of both worlds. And I think that's why yeah, yeah. a lot of these instigates, especially are so drawn to you and your, your work. Yeah.
2: I, well, I don't think it's work. And uh, I mean, mm-hmm. let's face it: there are Riverdale fan accounts that have you know twenty times as many followers as I do. But, uh, but I, you're
1: I, not a fan account. I mean, I was actually shocked. There was that great story on you. Now I can't remember what publication oh, in, it was in, in it,
2: W though. Magazine.
1: And w Magazine, yeah, yeah. yeah. Free and, magazine. And, and I must everyone be, should read it. Well. I
2: don't, because the person makes terrible grammar errors that wrote it. And I did write. Well, to them. that's
1: 2020. They all fucking do that nowadays. I know. Even the New York Times. Well, first of all, they had me, they
2: spelled Dublin Zoetrope wrong. And then I had to write to them about four times to change it. I feel like Barbara ringing up um, Tim Cook to sort of change her name. on yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Oh, my God. And,
2: And then, of course, they changed that, but they left the the grammar mistake. So I don't want to get that person in trouble that wrote it. Well, whatever.
0: It was
1: was a good article, content, content. But the thing is, uh, the thing about the article that it made me realize was, of course, you're a Glenn Close fan. And bringing this up not to have some fight about Glenn Close, but to say that it's so wrong to refer to you in any way along the lines of, like, a fan account. Because even with Glenn, whom you love, you're so um merciless to her, you know. Well and um I aspire to that. I mean, you know, I love me some Patty, but I and I, I pride myself on being able to laugh at Patty a lot of the time. But I don't think I'm as free with Patty as you are with Glenn. I
2: know, and I really, I mean, I'm not sure if Glenn does listen to this podcast, but if she does... She does not.
0: <laughs> she does not, I, I guarantee. I
2: mean, I, I feel so guilty. I mean, that poor woman, because I'm not talking about her at all. I'm really talking about myself, you know? And there's just something about Glenn that kind of really strikes me as bitter gay man who couldn't make it in musical theater. So...
0: Mm. i sort yeah of, i mean
2: i i sort of use her as the conduit for all my sort of um bitterness and i'm really not talking about glenn close who's a wonderful woman and i love that she has her own instagram that's just so wholesome and pure which is
0: yeah fabulous yeah. <laughs> I know, um but, but no that's i think that's so that's such a good point to make because i mean you know like ben was talking about with patty i mean i feel like uh you know i worship barbara streisand so much but like I also hate her so much because of like the qualities that she possesses that I despise in myself and others. Mm. So like, I mean, I think that's part of, you know, kind of the way we choose these ladies to worship and and to idolize. It's like we we love them and we hate them and and it's because, like you're saying, they're that conduit through which um, but it's
1: so rich and layered with you and Glenn because yes. it's like it, it you know what you say is accurate, you know, and I, I can see that throughout your posts about a bitter gay man who failed in musical theater, <laughs> you know, and that's such a perfect lens for Glenn Close because not only does it highlight, her as the bitter loser, it also is also fucking triumphant because who can you compare her to in musical theater who has more talent than she does for musical theater? Bernadette Peters, Patti LuPone, et cetera, et cetera. They would all give their left and right tit to be Glenn Close, you know? I mean, it's like, it there's, she's still resplendent. You know, Glenn Close, ha ha, fuck you. You're no Meryl Streep, but she's number two. It's like, there's something so regal about Glenn Close, despite the like so-called bitterness. And in a way, as much as you shit on her, you point that out because to even talk about her in the context of musical theater, I mean, she's almost more in common musical theater-wise with Barbara Streisand and Liza Minnelli and Bette Midler, who were too, too, they just flew the coop. You know, yes.
0: musical theater is in their dust. Yeah. Well, and it's also like Glenn is such a huge star and a celeb. It's like, you know, I think people like like Glenn and Barbara and Bet, it's like those people can stand up to this sort of um, irreverent yeah. scrutiny and, yes. and, you know, behavior because it's not like there's a struggling actress who's trying to make it work. You know, they're actually like they've already, you know, set their legacy in stone and, and they can withhold, withstand that.
1: Now, Mark, uh, correct me if, if uh, did you start this account after she lost the Oscar or was, am I just getting my timeline mixed up?
2: Oh no, I started this account, I'd say, you know, four or five years ago. I used to write a blog that was called uh, Dublin Zoetrope that nobody read. It got sort of, you know, 10 hits per oh. year and the only people that read it were me and, you know, probably some child somewhere that kept refreshing the page, but, um, uh, I uh, went on Instagram then and used that name. And I was the great hit of Instagram, whereas the blog never got anywhere. And, you know, so I've been doing it for, I'd say, easily three or four years. And it's only kind of maybe in the last year since that Oscar thing that really people have followed me. And I'm very grateful to those people that follow me. And I don't want to ascribe any importance at all to it because it is just sort of hurling abuse at these elderly actresses. But still,
0: it is great fun to do. But it's also, I mean, it's not just uh, abuse. It's like, I mean, one of my favorites, I always think about it. One of my favorite posts you ever did was the ladies of the hours trading cards. (laughs) (laughs) And it's just like, it's just like really, really brilliant. And I mean, there's that one. And then there's, there's so many others that I could, I could talk about, but that's always the one I always think about because just the idea of someone thinking of, the women of the movie, The Hours as Trading cards is just like so delicious and something I would buy oh thank you yes. well,
2: I do think though the hours really is the kind of cornerstone for sort of um basic gaze it's sort of you know the gate- well not the gateway drug, but it's the kind of um it's the kind of uh you know the um uh, it's sort of a you know the <laughs> Patient zero, or something. You know, they all know the hours, and I just thought I'd do it with mm-hmm. that rather than, you know, with some other. But anyway, I mean, people get very. So people get very uh, passionate about the hours, and which one of the women is the best of them, and you know, it's very yes. tiresome. I think. I think you know, it's quite obvious that Merrill is head and shoulders above the other two because Nicole Mm. Nicole has that fake nose and Julianne stands there. So, you know, that's really Um, the... um, It's so
0: funny. Um, I actually have had this debate at many dinner parties and most people say Julianne more. Julianne is so... I think Julianne is so smart because she's always is so
2: earnest no, she's always so broad but the films that she does and the performances are earnest and if you're broad in mm. earnest material I mean it's a it's a hat trick I mean you get away with it and I do like yeah. Julianne but again you know she's not a great favorite <laughs> I mean if she, oh my god yeah. I can't believe I'm talking about this I mean I honestly think I must be high or something but um
1: <laughs> no get it out get it out That's the place. Yes. yes
2: I thought we were talking about Carrie and Debbie today
1: yes well anyway well it's a good our, transition i, 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 I must the, say
2: i must tell your listeners that um you sent me a whole ream of different films and uh <laughs> concerts and things to choose from and i said "Oh well first i said we better do somebody where the two two of them are dead because i thought you know it would be just so unfair <laughs> just you know whoever but uh, but um Because I do feel, you know, Carrie and Debbie's death uh, three years or four years ago, I mean, it was, I think, for gay people, it was the kind of Michael Jackson moment. I mean, people remember where they were. Yeah, 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 When they heard that uh, Carrie Mm -hmm. died. And then the next night where where Debbie had had passed as well.
1: So, I I have to say, when you chose this, um, and honestly, when Daniel even put it on the list, I was very disappointed because um, I watched it a couple of times when it first came out because i it came out like right after they died right oh, it, like it came, it
2: came out the sunday after they died they yeah. they had filmed it yeah. for i think mothers day or something it was going to be the right. mothers day special on HBO right right and yeah. they, they said oh we'll shove it out because uh, you know sure. what happened
1: well, so I've watched it a couple of times because I was so obsessed. Uh, I've always been obsessed with Carrie because there used to be a TV show on IFC in the 90s, I think, called Dinner for Five. And it was hosted by Jon Favreau. And he always had um, four different actors, writers, directors. Um and they would just talk and eat dinner. And it was edited down to, you know, 45 minutes or whatever to go within the commercial breaks. Mm-hmm. And it was, and Carrie was a very regular guest, mm-hmm. always smoking. And um, I was, I'll, the impression she made on me then, I mean, obviously she'd been a movie star to me and I'd already been a fan of um, Postcards from the Edge, although I don't think I'd read it yet, but um, but just from the movie. But but the impression she made on me actually inspired me later when I got sober. I, I didn't, I wasn't worried about not being interesting anymore because I knew that Carrie Fisher sober, you didn't have to turn into like a sort of earnest basic gay just because you quit drinking and, you know, whatever. So Carrie gave me that knowledge. But anyway, so I'd watched the movie like twice, the documentary when it first was on. And then I think I was dating this guy who wanted to see it. And we kept putting it on and either having sex or putting it on and falling asleep. So I watched like the first, you know, half an hour, like 10 times. And so the last fucking thing I wanted to do was rewatch it, I thought. And I have to say that when I turned it back on... Last night, almost from the first frame, I was just like... (gasps) oh, my God, I love them both so fucking much. This is the greatest thing I've ever seen. I'm so fucking excited to watch this. Well, I think, you know, I
2: talked about it on, on, so I just called Dublin Zorotrope, so like, so Coldwell. but I, I, <laughs> I, I, like Audra's daughter. I say Audra's daughter if the people don't know who so so Coldwell was, but I mean, are they wow. likely, are they likely to know Audra, you know, if they don't know, well, I don't know, but anyway, but I uh, talked about it a few weeks ago and every sort of, I mean, it's sort of like, um, I don't know who sent it to me but they said it was the gray gardens so of sort of the last 10 years and I know mm-hmm. that that is a bit of an exaggeration I mean it is kind of hyperbole to say that but I mean it's not it's not uh, an outrageous comparison I think you know
0: there's a no, lot no. I mean there are so many similarities and I think the only difference is you know these ladies had much more money and and uh you know a social standing and you know obviously like actual class but like <laughs> I mean, we can get into it, but like, I mean, Debbie is definitely a little bit of a hoarder, you know, and some of these... And so is Carrie. And so is Carrie, but the difference is they have, like... The resources. I mean, it's kind of like Barbara, you know. Right. Um, It's like hoarders with resources. I know, but I think you know. I know everyone always
2: talks about Carrie's house that has you know sort of the Prozac tiles in the kitchen, but I actually think Debbie's house is sort of really chintzy, and it's you know the pictures of June Allison and Anne Blythe on the wall. Yeah. Literally. The Maltese Falcon and the ruby slippers on the
0: mantelpiece. I mean, it's yeah, it's like the huge eight by (laughs) ten of Cary Grant.
1: But, I mean, I, the thing is about that with
0: Debbie, like, so
1: many, like, famous old people who have tons of money have, like, very out-of-date style in their homes. Well, I mean, you know? look at Barbara.
2: I mean, her taste is opposing. Oh.
1: Well, I mean, but Bar- no Barbara's you. shit is new. I mean, Barbara buys that next week, you know. But, I mean, there's a lot of old, old movie stars and just old rich people who haven't redecorated since the seventies.
0: But it's also, I mean, Debbie is so obsessed with like Hollywood memorabilia. Yeah. And you know, there's the scene at the auction where it's very hoarders. It's like, there's always that moment in the episode of hoarders where the people are having second thoughts and mm-hmm. they like decide they don't want to give this up. And that's what happens with Debbie and like the rat pack. It's actually yeah. more than hoarders. It's actually more because
1: uh, she's clearly holding on to something that is very, uh, real from her past. You know? Exactly.
2: And I think it's so sad, really. I mean, when you think she sort of bankrupted herself several times over to open this museum that, you know, never got yeah. off the ground. And when you think now that, you know, that Academy Museum they want to open, I mean, and I think it's going to be the greatest sort of folly ever. And Debbie, you know, had been trying to do that since, you know, since the MGM right. auction in the 70s. I mean, I think it is. I know that the son, uh, Todd, does say that, you know, seeing your mother disappointed. Mm, I, I, think, yeah. I think there, there is some It is kind of sad. I mean, of course, it is funny sort of thinking of her as this sort of, um, you know, like Marlena Dietrich and her Paris apartment being eaten by Alsatians. But, you know, there is something
0: very endearing about it as well. On the other hand, I think. Yeah. Well, and and Carrie even says, like, uh, my mother was a fan before she was ever a star. Yeah, Yeah. And like when she gets the Lifetime Achievement Award near the end, it's like you can tell that actually means so much to Debbie. You know, as opposed to most huge stars, especially if they were born into fame, it's like, you know, it's just another day for them. But for Debbie, Mm -hmm. it's like this is she loves show business. She loves being. Well, and also, as Carrie says, they did not throw awards at her. So I know and, but, it, and it's and, special. Right. Yes, yes, yes.
1: Mm. But I and, I want to know do does anyone know I should have looked it up but how what was their financial status well of both of them but especially Debbie at the
0: end. Well, I know well, when uh, Ever she died it said because i looked this up she had um a net worth of like 85 million oh okay so she was great by the end
2: <laughs> well i know but i mean when you hear about i mean have you ever seen the interview of the two of them on oprah in about 2010 i think or 2011 um no. where where she is showing you know the marilyn monroe subway dress and uh you know julie andrews Sound and music costume and that. And I mean, she practically, you know, she, I think she had three auctions altogether to to sell. I mean, this huge collection she had. So it was, I mean, I suppose a nest. I mean, 85 million is a nice nest egg. But, um, yeah.
1: It, it, but is that, it, Daniel, is that a real number or is that like from one of those sites that says like celebrity net worths? Oh, they're
0: always so wrong, those net worth sites. I have no idea. I just Googled it and that was the answer that came up. Oh, yeah, that's probably wrong. Um, so she, but, she pro- she was we, a pauper, basically. I imagine.
1: She, well, well, she could have been. I mean, I really, I was really, I was wondering it too, because, like, for example, um, like well, when she was playing the Mohegan Sun, I noticed all the empty seats in the house. Oh yeah, and I was like, Oh, that was like, also
0: a very big venue. But, yes,
1: um, but I, yes, and she did have a good crowd. It was just not
0: nearly big enough for what the but, venue could hold. But I do know that at one point. I'm not sure when this was, but Debbie was going bankrupt and that's why she had to sell a lot of these. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Items. Mm. Well, I mean,
2: it is so sad when you think of so many stars. I mean, Mickey Rooney, for example, died a pauper basically and was, you know, looking for solicitations from the public to sort of uh, fund the, um, but that, but that was from an, an awful abusive wife. I mean, I don't. Th- I think Debbie had good family with her, and and of course supported her own family when Carrie said they didn't deserve it. Like the mother, who is such an yeah. int- the, the grandmother. I mean, you know, in, oh in, yeah. yeah, in uh, in postcards. I mean, played by Mary Wicks. I mean, it's such a good, Brilliant,
0: yeah, yeah.
2: But, well, and um, they interviewed
0: Debbie Debbie's mom in this yeah. documentary, and what is she says something like I she, all her brains are in her ankles or something like (laughs) that. I was, I was like, what does this joke mean? I didn't get
2: it. Well, I mean, the famous thing is that, you know, she wanted to be a gym teacher. It's like, you know, it's, it's sort of like the, legend it was created with that it's like lana turner walking into schwab's drugstore Mm, it's that debbie mm, yeah all debbie wanted to be was a gym teacher and you know yet she was you know all the awful things that happened at mgm instead of you know being a gym teacher and she would have been happy and i think billy lord said that in an interview um Mm, to mm. i don't know ellen or whoever that i don't know i mean certainly she (laughs) she was very talented and had her brains and her ankles or whatever the the grandmother said but
1: Well, uh, but she also says um, that uh, she wishes she had Carrie's voice.
2: Well, that's, I think, such a uh, such a such a interesting uh, part of that documentary, because it kind of does explain the sort of relation not not explain it. But, you know, the fact that uh, she wanted to be Carrie, she didn't want to be Debbie or Eddie. And that lovely scene where she sings um, Bridge Over Troubled Water as a kid. Mm
1: -hmm. Fifteen.
2: Yeah. And and he married the man that wrote it and called it Bridge Over Debbie's Daughter. um,
0: (laughs) I mean, that scene is so powerful because Carrie's voice is really spectacular. And it's so unique. And I was thinking, like, she could have been, like, a huge... Singer, like she could I have been like
1: think that. I was thinking this is very Lucy Arnaz. Um, I mean, I loved watching her and I was impressed that she was doing that at 15. And she's such a great artist and she puts so much heart and depth into stuff that she did that no doubt had she pursued that, she would have had something to offer that was worthwhile. But I wasn't like,
0: oh, La Voce, you know. Oh, I was. I love. I thought it was just so unique and like just rich and like the, I mean, she was just so open and just like belty and luscious. And then like, and then even to hear her singing later in the show, like whenever she just sings like to Debbie in her like yeah. little cro- croony voice, I was yeah. like, there's like shades of like Rosemary Clooney here. Like Carrie actually, I think had a w- really wonderful voice, obviously being the daughter of Eddie Fisher, it makes sense. But like, um, speaking you know, of Eddie Fisher's children's talent, um, let's just, can we talk about Todd
1: a little bit? Well, what yeah, I love is,
0: is, oh, no, sorry, go, go ahead. ahead. Go, go on, Mark. No, but
2: I was going to say, I love when I think I sort of get serious kind of Joey Luft vibes from Todd. And I yeah. sort of, yeah. I, I sort of expect him to say, you know, that he loves shepherd's pie and the squares, uh, the shapes that aren't squares, but, um, <laughs> I love what I I think he became a born-again Christian or something or some kind of... Yes,
0: that was my question. I got Jesus vibes from him.
1: I... I trust you guys on that. I saw the Bible quote outside the house and I was concocting a theory in my head that that was all Catherine Hickland because everything he talked about, he just seemed to me like such a guy's guy. And like, even the way he talked about show business, like if you're born into it. And I was like, first of all, it pissed me off. I hate anybody that was born into anything, you know? But like, it seemed to me like he was much more excited about the God of show business of Debbie and Carrie with the star Wars poster on his wall, you know, rather than, I felt like maybe Jesus was the wife. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe. I don't know.
2: I loved when they showed the little uh, statue in the, in the garden and it said the fishers and the apostrophe was in
0: the wrong place. It was, Yeah, <laughs> Oh my God. Obviously Carrie didn't take her red pin to that. Mm-hmm. No. Yeah. <laughs> um. Uh. But yeah, speaking of that, I mean, I've heard these stories about, like, uh, George Lucas or whoever in Star Wars, like, giving Carrie the scripts. And, like, Carrie actually, like, punched it up Mm. back in the day when she was, you know, like, uh, 20 or whatever. And and that's something that is so apparent in this film. And we all know it. But just Carrie off the cuff, even, is just so smart. And she's just constantly just throwing out these one-liners that are brilliant and you know like her uh, former babysitter says in that one scene even at two carrie was the most interesting person i'd ever met yeah and that's what i really took away this viewing was how fucking smart carrie is and just those wheels are always turning and she always is just you know giving giving you a one one-liner that's so brilliant totally Mm. I, um,
1: also, I was thinking, um, that, uh, speaking of like with George Lucas, it was a little offensive to me when they, I forgot about this, or maybe it didn't hit me the same way when it first came out, but when they were talking about the weight she had to lose for Star Wars, for the new, for this, you know, the final Star Wars that she made.
0: 72. Hilarious.
1: Another Carrie fucking brilliant moment. Um, uh, but like. Why? Why did she have to fucking lose weight to play 60-something Princess Leia?
0: Mm. Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, I think that's that's really uh, a good point. You know, it's Hollywood and aging actresses and all that.
2: Well, I mean, that caused, well, not a huge um, scandal, but I mean, you know, it was a big thing that when that Star Wars 72 came out that it was kind of fat shaming or you know, older woman shaming, whatever the phrase is. And it kind of, you just think, I mean, I mean, what's the point? I mean, Meryl would never get that in a month of Sundays. It must be sort of, you know, they think because these Star Wars fans are sort of more, because I mean, all those recent ones are just totally, I mean, I, uh, Oh, I don't know. I've lost my train at all completely, sorry.
1: I don't think that's fair about Meryl. I mean, you know, Meryl works very hard to be thin and she never. Carrie got fat at a certain point, you know. And Carrie carried a lot of weight for a long time that Meryl even at her, you know, Meryl has played the game to keep her body, you know, now in her 70s, maybe she's a little bit of a spread, but certainly nothing like Patty, you know. I mean, I, I think, well, you know, Carrie, but- Carrie got chubby and they wouldn't, they wouldn't let her make the movie, and, and I, I and I think but Carrie
0: they- is also some like you know as we see in the Star Wars convention scene, Carrie was such a sex symbol yes, back in the day, true, and true. all these you know guys grew up jerking off to her, and totally. I mean even me as a kid, like I watched all the Star Wars movies, and as a kid I was so obsessed with Princess Leia totally. and the Gold bikini, totally, and um, so I think that's also hard for audiences yeah. and Star Wars fans to kind of reconcile with is is the fact that Carrie's older yeah. now and she's no longer the sexy Princess yeah. Leia mm-hmm. that they, you know, love so much. Well, uh, even me, I
1: mean, I'm, I'm a McKinsey six, let me tell you, you know, but I remember when I saw that last Star Wars movie that she was in being like, Oh my God, she looks so great. Oh, I'm so happy. she's has long gray hair. I can't believe how much weight she lost. I never thought I'd get to see her so thin again. This is amazing. I mean, why did I fucking care? Why was I invested in Carrie's waist size? But I was, you know? Mm. Yeah. <laughs> well, so, uh, Mark, well, do, Mark, I know... Mark, do you feel that way? Do you have, I mean, do you do you, do you you give a shit if, you know, Glenn Close gets fat or Julianne Moore loses weight or whatever?
2: Well, I mean, we'd never hear the end of it if it was Julianne, but I don't really uh, think about... <laughs> no, I don't mean that. I don't... Yeah. Um, <laughs> I. But I mean, that's the thing, though. I mean, people praise these. I mean, I think nowadays, I mean, people just don't know what acting is. And they, you know, sort of see Olivia Colman or somebody like that. And they think because they can cry on demand, it's the greatest performance ever. Um, Mm -hmm. And these kind of transform, like Olivia Colman and The Favourite, where she did gain, I think, something like, you know, 15 pounds or whatever to play this. uh, Mm -hmm. I know uh, that's just the example I have that, that came to mind, but... No, I, I really do not give a, a, a fig about how people look. I mean I mean, remember Elizabeth Taylor in the seventies?
0: I mean, that was the best Liz, I think. The, the yeah, yeah, totally. For sure. But anyway. Well. So Mark, I know you said that you have had quite a journey with Carrie because of, as you call it, the yental health aspect of it all, <laughs> which I love. So do and you know, want to that, talk about that? Well, I mean, that's very immature now
2: to say yental health. The other thing I say is depressica lang and, um, <laughs> and it, it's so immature and I'm sure there's probably some people reading that and think who does this person think they are to say that because it, I mean I mean of course I think Carrie did prove that you do have to have a sense of humor about it and that yes but yes, at, yeah. at, the, at the same time I mean of course you can't say anything nowadays but still I, I really shouldn't call it gentle health because I, I think I don't know i probably anti-semitic or something but um uh, no. I just think Carrie is someone that I mean. I'm not saying that mental illness nowadays is fashionable, but certainly Carrie must have been the first. I mean, that really. I mean, I'm sure there are other ones, but uh, you know, Carrie's sort of openness from you know what thirty years ago when postcards came out, it it does. Yeah. It, it, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I'm sure all of us can't really remember a time when she wasn't sort of open about that. And I just think it—it it is, totally. I think it is very heartening. I mean, I'm sure there is, you know, some kind of element that thinks, oh, well, would she not just keep it to herself? But I mean, I, I do think it does mean a lot to people. And certainly that is why, yes. as, as I said earlier on, when, when they did die in, in 2016, there was this connection where, you know, I don't think it would have been otherwise. I mean, I think that's, that is what kind of pushed her beyond as talented and as wonderful as she mm-hmm. was. But I... You know, I, I think um, it, it really was the, the most salient sort of a uh, connection with the fans uh, with Carrie, anyway. Yeah. Because, yeah. yeah. I, mean, I mean, she wrote a book called Shockaholic and another one called "Wishful Drinking." And I mean, mm-hmm. I mean even though, even though I don't think she was an alcoholic as such, but um, it's a good title. But um, yeah, it, you know, it is uh, you know, and even that that HBO special she did of, of "Wishful Drinking." I mean, it's yeah, it's um, but uh yeah sorry i completely i'm the most disappointing guest ever i no you're fabulous no so you know but, it's
1: a wonderful point you make because i I don't think that we have, we're it's become so um de rigueur, or however you pronounce that, you know, that the idea that people can be open about their substance abuse problems and their mental health stuff. I mean, you just hear it now. It's an excuse that people use anytime they get a DUI or anything, you know, but it actually, as you pointed out, was really groundbreaking for Carrie to take ownership of that. And like you said, for so many decades, the only way, you know, certainly people even, I mean, I'm 44, to be honest, but. Um, but even at my age, I still cannot remember a time when that wasn't part of the story around her, you know? But it's interesting um, watching this uh, documentary because I think, you know, I was 12 or so when Postcards from the Edge came out. And I was I loved the movie right away. And I was very ar- aware that um, it was Carrie Fisher's book and based on Carrie Fisher's book and that it was about Carrie and Debbie, you know? And... I think in my 12 year old mind and I have a feeling in a lot of people's minds, there was sort of this idea that Carrie had these problems and now she's cured and now we move on with Hollywood, you know, and I think what's became true later in Carrie's openness in interviews and that show that I talked about, Dinner for Five, and of course all of her subsequent books and her one-woman show on Broadway and on HBO, Wishful Drinking, and very much in this documentary, is that Carrie's struggles, and we know now about the facts of her death, her struggles were not something that were cured overnight in 1987 or whatever, but that were a persistent problem. And, you know, and as you, I mean, you said you don't know whether or not she's an alcoholic, and that's a good point to make, too, because for me to relate to her as an alcoholic is actually very much a small piece of the pie, because what you see in this documentary is that on, in Carrie's life, if not every single day, then every single month, a very persistent, debilitating problem is that mental uh, mental illness that she has. Hmm. Um, Well, I think even
2: the the addiction side of it, I mean, when you think of, like, how many cans of Coke she drank, and the shopping involved, it just sort of, I mean, I I mean, I meant strictly sort of alcohol. I mean, I know it was pills and that she liked, but... I do think she definitely was that sort of addictive personality that is, like she says about her father, and, you know, when she says about caring for her father and that he didn't deserve to get that sort of care in the last year of his life, you know, someone has that kind of addictive personality. It does make them irresistible to people, even though they are sort of beleaguered with all these um, problems. But um, I think that's, again, the the appeal of her. I mean, everything she did is just so kind of... You know, the, when she's touring her house and it's just so when you think kind of like every little item, whether it's the poster that says child of divorce or the um, picture of a, a Prozac. I mean, she was buried in a Prozac urn. Um, you know, <laughs> yeah. the, uh, no, she was. It was like a China uh, urn in the shape of a Prozac film. Yeah. So good. And that that she just kind of had hanging around the house. I mean, they didn't know what to put her in. And they remembered, oh, this is in the kitchen or something. And I think it was a cookie jar. I don't know. But, you know, it's just kind of a...
0: Well, and it's so the anti-Debbie. You know, Debbie's someone Mm -hmm. who always wanted to be in control. And, you know, when they're walking uh, into the ceremony at the end, Debbie's like, act like we're just talking. Act like everything's Mm -hmm. fine. I mean, Debbie, and, you know, she wouldn't let the cameras in that one day when she was feeling bad. I mean, everything was always in its place. And Carrie was the opposite of that and rejected that. And, you know, she wanted a house that was the opposite of the one she grew up in. As she said, we grew up around – we didn't grow up with each other. We grew up around each other like trees. And, um, so like Carrie was someone who was just not going to bullshit, you know, but actually go to the opposite end of the spectrum and actually irreverently and comically address these issues head on, whether it was in her writing or in her choice of home decor. And, um, I mean, there's so much we could talk about, about Carrie's house, but the one thing I want to mention is at the very beginning when it's taking you on the tour and in her bathroom, there's a poster hanging of Debbie doing like a shampoo ad <laughs> <laughs> and not only is it hanging but it's signed and there's a message and a signature from Debbie and it and it's signed mama and then in parenthesis and then it says Debbie and then in parentheses it says Reynolds that is <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> which I love like to her own daughter Debbie still signs Debbie Reynolds well that's Just the thing are saying uh, Daniel, uh, oh, is that a catchphrase? Reynolds well, she, said it. She,
2: no, she always rang up and said, uh, "Hello, dear, this is your mother, Debbie." I mean, that was what she was known. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Back to what you were just saying, though, Daniel, about um, the you know Carrie's talking honestly about things versus the Debbie ethos of um, ethos of you know there's putting up the, the smiley face for the camera yeah. and everything. Th- those were the two things for me that were actually I literally I mean I never cry but I cried watching this uh, last night because. I cried with Debbie watching when it became a strain for her to, to put her best foot forward, you know, and never more than when it wasn't a strain, when she had that difficult interview that she cut short and then, as she walked out with her back to the camera, and she did a little bit of a chaplain bit on her way yeah, out, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know. I mean, it's like it's like what's you know, um, both sides now. Um, now it's just another show. You leave them laughing when you go, you yeah. know. And Debbie did that, you know. She exited with style,
0: but on her terms. But yeah. On her
1: terms, and that. But it was heartbreaking because you knew exactly how she was feeling and what was going on. And and the 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 parallel thing for me watching this, rather not. For me with so much emphasis the parallel thing for me watching this with with carrie was um when she was in bed in the middle of a um depressive episode yeah. and and she you know she talked about the two sides of her personality what was it roy and i Roy and pam. pam and she was in a pam moment and yeah. she was and she was lying in bed just with her head on the pillow and describing what you know what that's like and it was so naked and it was with yeah. zero pretension and and even you know this idea of making the character names and all that i mean it, you know it's it's a way of understanding things and it's funny as you describe her being irreverent and all that you know her her the way she uses humor to make an audience or a reader or you know a viewer uh really understand the nuance and you know what the experience of her humanity is you know and but in that moment we've already gotten the joke about roy and pam and now she's just as pam and it's it's i mean it's really took my breath away and it but in a way it's the same thing as debbie i mean that's i guess that's another thing about great gardens besides all the trappings of uh, another way that this is like great gardens besides all the trappings of the funny eccentric thing about them and living together and you know being sort of Hollywood being kind of finished with them or the patriarchy or whatever, the same way that it was with the Beals, but, but also that way that they are uh, so yin and yang and different and they're, but they're really two sides of the same coin. And we just see the, 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 the,
0: the, there's a pain or something inside that's exactly alike. I mean, it's truly, it's, it's a, it's a story about how they deal with loss. Mm -hmm. Like, I think, you know, uh, you know, Debbie loses, her husband, uh, Eddie Fisher. And, you know, you see these, this footage of her addressing reporters and she's like, just so like, everything's okay. Like, well, I guess we'll have to blah, blah, blah. And then, um, but then the hoardings, you know, she starts hoarding or whatever. It's like you see her, how she deals with this. I'm um, so like, happy you
1: said those together because it's what I was couldn't think of, but I think you answered my question from the beginning of like, what is she holding on to with the hoarding? I mean Yeah, it, it's but, like she
0: doesn't that's like her memories, like she's like, These are my boys. Hollywood,
1: you know, and and it's sad because of, in fact Hollywood fucked her over. I mean The person that stole her husband, if you want to, you know, not to really exist on those terms, but literally her husband left her for Elizabeth Taylor. Yeah, like the queen mother of Hollywood. And, 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 but that is what Debbie didn't let go of.
0: Yeah. And then, you know, Carrie, she lost her father. I mean, and if you really want to get down to it, uh, we we joke about Carrie's Coca-Cola obsession, but like. Eddie Fisher was the spokesperson for Coke <gasps> back in the day. Oh my God. Right. And So like the fact that Carrie is literally like walking around with a can of Coke at all hours, all the time, it's like so symbolic and, you know, her addiction and, and just her, as she says, I, I, it would be so cool to get to the end of my personality. It's like, she just constantly wants more mm-hmm. and she's, she's doing something to, uh, deal with this loss of her father and, and her childhood. What did and you guys so- think about that scene on her father's sickbed?
1: Um,
2: I thought it was quite touching, actually. I mean, it was, you know, it was, uh, as, as she said about, her, about Debbie's mother and about Eddie, I mean, they didn't deserve that kind of care and attention, but it was sort of making things right at the end of their lives, I suppose. It was mm. sort of... You know, it was. I mean, Carrie always said that um, Eddie would rock up to wishful drinking and would sort of be cured by show business, by applause, and you know was mm-hmm. totally, totally senile at that point and thought everybody was Obama. But um, you <laughs> know, uh, <laughs> it, it is that kind of. I mean, it is. You know, I don't know. I don't really want to say the. Well, it is the family business. I'm sure you know butchers and uh, candlestick makers feel the same way. But as Todd <laughs> said at the beginning, you know, it does. Uh, gel them. And it is, I don't know, I, I just found it very interesting. I mean, I, I'm sure Eddie Fisher didn't know what was going on and certainly Carrie straight in about the, with the comment about, you know, am I more beautiful than Elizabeth Taylor? I mean, yeah. you know, it, it just shows how people have these kind of uh, things that they're utterly fixated on and, you know, will bring them up at any cost.
0: Mm. Yeah. And, you know, they talk so much about uh, I mean, Elizabeth
2: really is in this, I think, is sort of a character that's there, even though she's... I mean, yeah, sort of,
0: exactly. I mean, the
2: scene where, you know, they're going through Debbie's closet and they find this moo-moo from, you know, that belonged to Elizabeth in the 70s. Yeah,
0: yes, the other woman.
2: I mean, absolutely. And it's almost like in Rebecca when, you know, you never yeah, see um, Yeah, yeah. Well, that's, a, I mean, so exaggerated. But it is, I mean, she is that... Uh, Presence that you know, I don't know. I th- I don't know whether that was intentional. I mean, I don't that's really. That's so get,
0: true, though. Yeah,
2: I don't really get a sense, though, that the people that made this documentary. I know they were obviously friends. I think friends of Carrie
1: uh, Fisher, Stevens, Yeah, Fisher Stevens. Yeah,
2: but it, it isn't. It isn't kind of you know um, a sort of. It's not very Hollywoody. It's not that entertainment, if you know what I mean. Yeah, like, yeah, it, 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 and which it, which is, I think, what makes it so kind of different from sort of a. I can't really think of a Hollywood documentary that would be kind of comparable, but
0: you know, it, it, there, there's an edge to it. I think that's why we love it so much. And I know whenever we'll, well, it's eight carry... I
2: mean, when you think, did yeah. you did you see that film um, "Tea with the Dames" about Maggie Smith? And yes, yeah, so good. I mean that that was a DVD extra. It wasn't a documentary at all. I mean, you know, mm. whereas this yeah. has that kind of. Um, you know, I think it's what what makes it interesting, really.
1: Yeah. Well, also, I mean, I think, you know, what I was realizing watching this is in the beginning when I was just, like, kind of surprised by how immediately thrilled I was to be watching this again when I really thought I was going to, like, be annoyed to have to, like, slog through it, you know? Um, not, not be- Only, as I said before, because I had watched it when it first came out, which was not that long ago, and it felt like... I felt like I collected it, like I digested it. I had no need to watch it again, and and but what I realized, and it was I was thinking about this in terms of other things Daniel had put on our list of possibilities whether with you or another corn stream or the Elaine Stritch documentary and the Joan Rivers documentary. And I had a similar feeling about those that I had already like gotten everything I wanted to get out of watching them. So why would I, I wouldn't really be excited to like spend an hour or two having to rewatch it now. But what I realized, and I think it would be true for those also is because of what you say, Mark, because it has that, edge of not being a, a DVD extra of actually being like really like a little bit like a, I don't know if the right expression is fly on the wall, but you really do feel like you're spending time truly with these people as they truly are getting really sort of a, 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 a taste of them of what they're really like and, and of what they're, of what makes them tick. And, and for, and I think it would be the same for me with Elaine and Jones documentaries in that, um, it feels like hanging out with them and they're these fascinating people whose work was so important i can say without cleric without confirming i know i can speak for both of you that the work of these women is so important to who we have become as people ourselves and uh, as strong black women and so therefore uh they're always with you, and so to get to go hang out with them in that sense is actually like a treat, as opposed to. For, oh, here's an example you were looking for, Mark. A documentary that's not like that. Besides, that's entertainment. Would be the Carol Channing documentary. Mm. Have you seen that? I don't think I
2: have. Actually, I'm kind of no, I haven't. <laughs> got I'm ashamed. Have you seen of it, it, Daniel? I... Yes.
1: Right. Do you agree? I mean, it's a good movie. It's a great, fun thing to watch. But it's it's definitely like a. It's, it yes. doesn't get her humanity in the way that the Joan one does or the or this does or, for, you know, whatever.
0: Right. And I, I mean, I know uh, when Carrie, I think, first saw a cut of this, she was kind of taken aback by how intimate it was. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then she kind of had to be convinced and she finally, you know, agreed that it was that was how it needed to be. But, you know, it shows... Um, it shows them like when she goes over with that souffle, it Mm. shows them like digging in with two forks, sitting on the step of Debbie's living room. Like it's just no glamour whatsoever. Even though, as Carrie says, Debbie's laying on the floor in a very Debbie movie star way. (laughs) Um, and then it shows you all around the house. I mean, on Debbie's coffee table, which, you know, I paused on and zoomed in. (laughs) It's like, there's like a holy Bible on top of like some book about Noel Coward with like an ashtray for Carrie with like you know, a bottle of Listerine or whatever. It's, I mean, I'm sure Debbie, like, cleaned up or whatever before they came over, but it really is just a glimpse into who they were and, um, well, people and forget, how they lived together.
2: People forget about Debbie's sort of uh, religious faith. I mean, she was a, a Nazarene and, you know, grew up in this yeah. almost in a sect, practically, in, in Texas or somewhere, I think. And and they forbid people from even... Go- I think they forbade people from going to movies. They forbade everything. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of... She does have that puritanical streak. And it's sort of... I often think, you know, she kind of had nearly... Maybe like an enfant terrible sort of innocence. I mean, where that scene where she says about... Um, you know, wanting Carrie to sleep with a gay chorus boy from Irene, oh, yeah. and that she would supervise it and sort of, you know, oh my god, yeah. I mean, no. it, I mean, it's just, it's, I don't want to say it's kind of tactless, but it is sort of that kind of. It's an innocence, and it's a lovely totally. thing, really. I totally. mean, and still, well, it's an You know, still. I mean, she would have been what in her fifties then. I mean, it still just shows that she did have that kind of, you know, that Tammy sort of. I mean, she sort of became Tammy in a way, didn't she? You know, it was her. Uh, that Talk kind of to film. me about
1: Tammy. I've never seen it, and I, I now I realize every time I watch this, I'm like, what's the deal with Tammy?
2: Well, it was her. It was her one kind of hit as a song. I mean, I don't think I've even ever seen the, They made a few of them. I think they made another one with Connie Stevens, and another one with, or, well, I don't know whether. They they made a series of Tammy films in the fifties and sixties, but, ah. um, but 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 it was the hit record uh, for for Debbie, which annoyed Eddie Fisher seemingly that you know she had a, <laughs> but but really though when you think of Debbie's films and you think of sort of singing in the rain and maybe the unthinkable Molly Brown, I mean what else yeah. do you think of? I mean you think of the the single for Tammy, maybe you think of, um, I don't know Charlotte's
1: Web, maybe I, I mean that isn't
2: yeah right. yeah ahead
1: or I mean, Will and Grace. I mean, honestly, like where else to go? That, you know,
2: that, that that is the thing. I mean, it isn't like Elizabeth or whoever that you have this yeah. sort of. You don't think you know National Velvet and then Place in the Sun and uh, Giant, and you don't work your way through. I mean, it is very yeah. kind of. Uh, It's funny,
1: Mark, you just made me think of Liza because, and I would never have thought about this before because I always think of this sort of tragedy of Liza that she had this sort of like meteoric explosion in Hollywood and then immediately it was over and um, she really in a sense she never worked again and um, she spent the rest of her career touring essentially the same act and um But it's kind of like Debbie, sort of, except that it was just Debbie was at the era in Hollywood when...
2: But the thing about Debbie is, though, that I think is so interesting is that, you know, when she made those, I don't know, she made like a Whatever Happened to Baby Jane film with Shelley Winters in the 70s, Whatever Happened to whatever, I can't remember the name of it, but it was one of those uh, sort of schlock horror films. And she didn't make another film for 25 years. And yet she was, you know, only a woman in her 40s was finished. When you think of the kind of films Shirley MacLaine was doing at the same time,
1: yeah, right. that Debbie,
2: mm. Debbie absolutely could have done. And, you know, Debbie or Shirley always resented Debbie for getting the role in, in Molly Brown, which she thought was kind of, you know, her. Because it was the right. only mm. it was the only time Debbie was uh, up for an
1: Oscar, actually, was for, for that and Mark, why do you say that Debbie absolutely could have done the films Shirley MacLaine did? Why are you confident about that? Because she's a great dramatic actress, and people forget that. People think she's... Uh, I don't so- know that. Tell me. Because I didn't know that.
2: Have you never seen... Um a catered affair, the the uh, one with uh, Betty Davis. No, and, um, I've only seen
1: the, sh- the 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 shitty musical with Faith with Prince Faith and Leslie yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, that's quite a, an interest. You know, she plays sort of the um, Brooklyn uh, Brooklyn daughter who's wants, the mother wants the big white wedding. I mean, it is a very kind of you know kitchen sink sort of a, pretends to be Marty sort of film. Really? Oh, you made me want to watch it. Well, I suppose, you well, it's okay, but, but I mean, she's good in that. <laughs> and uh, certainly, you know, um, I don't know. I, I don't think really they kind of knew. I mean, obviously she was the girl next door at MGM and always mm-hmm. played that kind of, but it's, it just shows how people were so typecast and didn't get a chance to do those more interesting roles. And, you know, De- Debbie has said that she would have loved to have done Shirley's role in The Turning Point. I mean, she wanted to play herself in Postcards from the Edge, but Mike Nichols didn't think, you know, anyone would buy it. Right. Some mm-hmm. wonderful remark like that. But, yeah. uh, you know, it is... Um, and, I, and I think she was a bit upset at the portrayal of Shirley that in Postcards, too, you know, the scene where she um, pours the vodka into the blender. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, different things that I think... I think people forget that Debbie and Carrie were estranged for something like fifteen years in the eighties and nineties. You know, you wouldn't oh, I didn't, that I didn't know that. I
1: didn't know that either. Fifth, are you sure it was that long?
2: Well, it certainly was a little while where Debbie wa- or where Carrie definitely wanted to get out of the sh- of the shadow of Debbie. I mean, yeah. you know, this, Debbie and her biography tells wonderful stories of, you know, when um, when Carrie didn't show up to the wedding of. Debbie and her third husband. You know, she got she she got Ava Gardner to you know locate her in a London hotel where she was sort of my god, you know, passed out on Percodan or whatever. Which I think you know, which I think is a great thing if you can get your mother to you know find Ava Gardner and get you out of your. um... Can you
1: imagine? (laughs) Ava Gardner does the best interventions
0: in Hollywood, right? Mm. Right. Go to Ava; she's your gal.
1: Ava was wonderful,
2: too. I mean, she confused the um, ladies' room for the lift in the Ritz in Madrid and was sort of banned from life because, she, you know, uh, she was uh, a terrible well, alcoholic. But...
1: Well, you can't spell Ava without AA. Mm. That's right. I <laughs> I'm just looking um, on it, looking getting material.
2: Mm. I think, really, alcoholism is the great uh, common thre- thread with all these women. I mean, let's face it, I don't think Glenn is an alcoholic, but, you know, it is the... Uh, the base sort of uh, thing we go for when we choose these divas
1: to worship, well, one of them anyway. Well, the largesse mm. anyway. I mean, it's you know, it, it's like you said, the addictive personality. You know, it's that, it's that, that craving always for more of everything. Mm. Yeah, I agree. Um, well, I, uh, I, I, I would always crave more of you, Mark. I think we'll have to have you back to talk about some other some other thing in the future. I know. I think this episode has been, well, I mean, you were
2: wonderful, but I feel I flopped on it. I, you know, I was, I was rambling and I didn't say one coherent thing for the whole hour we were on.
1: No, no, please. Rambling is our brand. Absolutely. Absolutely. You're perfectly coherent. It's just that fucking accent's so annoying. But otherwise, you're divine. Oh, I, well, thank you.
2: <laughs> well, this accent is so fake. Anyway, I felt I was, you know, going to lapse into the harsh tones of my native Dublin when I was asked something I didn't want do to answer. Do it, do it. <laughs> no, I'm only joking. But um, it was great, and I hope the sound isn't too bad for your listeners. I mean, I to-
1: they're lucky to get to hear from you at all. They would, they would yes. crawl belly deep through hell. They've been, no. Yes, they've they've they've
0: heard much worse. That's for sure. Oh, I know. Well, um, wait, should we play our game with Mark? Oh, yes, we must. Okay, oh. well, do you know our game, Dolly Concert Kill? Yeah. Yes, I do. Okay, so, uh, I guess, I mean, we have to do Debbie, mm-hmm. Shirley, and, uh, Glenn. Yeah. <laughs>
2: Well, when I do this game and Shirley comes up, I mean, I do say kill her because she'd come back with her past lives. That's so, right. That's
0: right. Clever.
2: So I don't, I don't know. I think Glenn would be so earnest in Hello, Dolly. I mean, you'd be waiting for her to find the one laugh in the whole show. Um, <laughs> but at the, uh, um, I don't know. I mean, I think Debbie kind of was a bit long. I'd like to see Glenn do a concert, actually. And Debbie is Dolly yeah. and Michelle Shirley. I mean, yeah, I, mean, I, I,
0: mean, I agree with that. Glenn interesting <laughs> yeah. interesting yes. up close and personal. Oh.
2: Cool.
0: All right. right. Um well, do you have anything obviously we all our listeners worship you and they know where they can find you on Instagram, but are you expanding the brand anytime soon? Yeah. Or are you branching out into other uh platforms?
2: Well, I was going to try and I was sort of half thinking would I you know, start a podcast because it does seem like the next step for sort of tragic accounts like mine. But after doing this interview, I think I'll never do one again. I was so nervous. No, but, you
0: definitely should do one. That'd be fab. Yes. And you could have us on it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You could have, you could have um,
1: Shirley on it. Um, yeah. let me, I, you've, you've whet my appetite. I want to read. Is that blog still up that you wrote before you had the Insta?
2: No, thank God, it was well.
1: It isn't. I should re. I should um,
2: reboot it. Maybe I just hate that name though, Dublin Zoetrope. It's such an awful name. I don't know why. I well, I know where I got it from, but I just. Well, I know you and I have had this
0: conversation. I think you should change it to your real name.
2: Yeah, I know. Well, what happened was a few weeks ago. I did ask sort of every uh, prestige gay that follows me, <laughs> should I change it? And they all said, "Oh no, keep it. It's your brand." But I. because I really yeah.
0: No, they are right. All the prestige games were right. You should keep no, it as your brand I say, I say change it to your real name. It's, it will be much easier, and it makes more sense going forward uh, if you're wanting to do more. Mm. Yeah. But, well. you know, I'll, 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 that's, a, that's between you and God and Shirley oh,
1: tell us, Tell us, you just said you know where you got the name. Where did you get the name?
2: Oh, I plagiarized it from American Zotrope, as you said at the beginning. You know, Sophia Coppola's company. I mean, talk about oh, a, talk about a sort of random uh, name. But it reminds me of Zoetrim, which is a weight loss supplement in my country. And oh, my God. I, I don't know how many calories you're allowed a day, but it's less than they were getting in the Warsaw ghetto.
0: So... <laughs> oh, my God. Wait, <laughs> so, so you yeah. live in, in Dublin? Well,
2: yeah, I mean... I don't like the Dublin either because, you know, the Glentrification. So I wanted to change that. But um, anyway, I know I, it was a lovely having me on. I'm so surprised. And I, I, I feel, no, but I feel as though I should say now nah, we'll sing them all and we'll stay all night or something because I, yeah. Did do you, know do you I, have an encore prepared? <laughs> no, I did. I, I've, surrounded by all these notes i haven't said a thing of them and the other thing is i thought this was going to be a video i'm sitting here sort of dressed lovely lovely lights i oh, thought no. well i know i know we were obviously we'll go out as a podcast but i thought you know maybe i would see you as i was we were talking And I said none of these notes I had, so I don't know. But I'm very grateful for you to have me on. Was
1: was there any? I only wrapped it up because I knew you had said you wanted to keep it to 45 minutes, and we were way over that. But do you tell us everything else you have? Oh no, I mean
2: nothing really. I mean, I think it has all been mentioned. I, but it was lovely being on, and I mean, you probably yes. Thank
0: you so much for joining us. Mm. Yes, Well, Well, thank
2: you and thank you to all your listeners and um this is the speech that glenn had prepared and never gave (laughs) rambling so thank you
1: Thanks for listening to Ben Rimelauer's Broken Records on Broadway World. For more episodes, visit Broadway World, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever podcasts do be. (laughs) And be sure to check out our new twice-weekly live stream video chat, Tuesday, Thursday, April, August.
0: This episode was edited by me,
1: Daniel Nolan. Thanks to Emmy-winning composer and lyricist Lance Horn for the Broken Records theme song. Follow us both, Ben Rimelauer and Daniel Nolan, on all y'all's socials. That's Ben Rimelauer, B-E-N... R-I-M-A-L-O-W-E-R
0: And that's Nolan with an E, not Nolan with an A. Because Nolan with an A is an A.